Welcome back, everybody, to the Read Connected podcast. Throughout season two, Alexis and I have interviewed a diverse range of individuals to discuss their individual paths of excellence, knowing that everyone's path is unique and nuanced in their own way. And as we have alluded to over the course of the entire podcast, regardless of one's talents, opportunities, successes, achievements, we're all human, and therefore each and every one of us may at some point in our lives experience challenges with mental health for various reasons and diverse reasons. In the first episode of season one, Alexis and I discussed why someone would want to seek out support of a therapist. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing the experience that families can have as they seek out mental health services for their child. For some, gaining the support of a therapist can really feel like a lifesaver. And despite this progress that's been happening in society where we're all kind of more open to therapy as an idea and as something that people can utilize to support them in their lives, there are many out there for whom seeking out therapy can really feel like an insurmountable hurdle to jump over. And this could be due to the fear of the unknown. It could be difficulties with trusting someone else with such personal matters. Could even be a sense of the stigma that seems to, you know, could still be there for sure. And maybe they have even seen therapy depicted in the media in a certain way that could have been off-putting or so forth. But there are many reasons why people may feel positive or not so positive about seeking out therapy. So we hope that in this episode, we're going to shed some light on the process for parents who might be considering getting their child set up with a therapist. So joining us in the studio today is Dr. David Langer at Suffolk University here in Boston, Massachusetts. David is an associate professor and program director of the Clinical Psychology Doctoral Program. He's also a licensed psychologist with his own private practice, providing teletherapy in Massachusetts. So happy to have David here with us today. He is extremely knowledgeable in the field of child and adolescent psychotherapy. In his research, he studies the effectiveness of youth psychotherapy and how families and clinicians can work together to plan therapy in a way that fits each family's values, preferences, and goals, very individualized, which is important in our field. I've known David for about 10 years now, and we've crossed paths while I was doing my training at the renowned Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders, known as CARD, at Boston University, where David at the time was the director of the Child Therapy Clinic. David's intelligence, his positive energy, his leadership really made for an incredible three years during my clinical training at CARD. And we are so grateful to have you join the Reconnected podcast today. And by the way, David is also an avid reader. He is a marathon runner and a budding pianist as well. And he's just a great dude. Great to have you here today, David. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I hope I could live up to the introduction you just gave. <laughs> so, David, you know, we have so much to discuss here in this episode. And, um, you know, I just want to open up the conversation probably in a more general way, kind of like when we do assessments in therapy, we want to kind of start general and then kind of narrow in as we go. So let's start general today. Let's just talk about the state of youth mental health, you know, at the, the stage we're in, let's say right now at the, the day of recording, it's June 1st, First. 2023. So where are we, you know, when we're thinking about the research of youth mental health and, and what the status is at this point? It's a great question, and it is a very important topic and a timely topic. Over the past few decades, our society has been increasingly recognizing that youth are facing challenges 
that are both unique to youth and also that are reflected across the lifespan. Anxiety, mood disorders, depression, uh, risk of suicide and self-harm, attention issues, social issues, and that these have gotten worse, unfortunately, over the past few decades, um, culminating in recently even the Surgeon General issuing a landmark report on the challenges youth are facing and youth mental health. And fortunately, youth are resilient. And we have a lot of systems in place to try to help youth and to help youth help themselves. Uh, But it is really important that we are paying attention to this, thinking about this, and each thinking in our own roles, whether we are... uh, youth, teenagers ourselves, and supporting ourselves, supporting our friends, educators, clinicians, parents, caregivers, uh, working in organizations, what we could do to help youth grow up in a healthy and safe environment. Can I just rewind for a second? Because you said over the past few decades, and I think there's a lot of misconception around mental health declining since COVID. But this really has been something that has been coming up for years before COVID even happened. That is a great point. And it is true. COVID brought in a whole number of new stressors with both the separation from people, the shift to a lot more online interaction or lack of interaction, fears of an actual family members' uh, health declining and and deaths from COVID, loss of jobs. But the youth mental health crisis, and I think it is fair to call it a crisis, Mm -hmm. has predated COVID uh, by a lot. COVID has made it worse, um, but is by no means the only reason or the only time span through which um, many of our youth in this country have been struggling. Yeah, I found myself saying that it's it's shown a brighter light on the issue because we see a lot more of it coming up and bubbling up both in our schools and our households on athletic teams and a lot of different different areas. It's amazing to hear patients just talk about mental health as just part of life. You know, like mental health is something that we have to prioritize. And I think we're all trying to figure out what that means too. You know, what does it mean to take care of your mental health? I think there's a lot of people who talk about it in, in a lot of different ways and and, and to be frank about it, you know, there are a lot of ways to support your mental health. And, you know, there's not one thing. And I think you alluded to this too before, David and Alexis. We always talk about this. There's so many factors that could affect a person's life. It's usually not one thing. Mm. Sometimes it is the one thing. You know, there's something traumatic that happened, this one event. But a lot of times there's a lot of different versions of it. And as a therapist, my, my favorite part of the job is get to know the person on a holistic level to say, okay, there's all these factors involved in this person's life. Let's see what we can address. What can you control? What can you not control? And how do you, you know, how do you navigate that with the person collaboratively? So, David, let's um, let's get into, you know, what is it like for a family to consider, hey, my child, whether they're young or young adult, let's say they're a young child to all the way young adult, college age, even right after college, when that tough transition out of college, when you lose the structure of college and it's like, wow, like all this uncertainty again, I got to deal with that. But let's talk about like a parent, you know, obviously there's parents who really care about their kids' well-being and they may not know how else to help or they feel like therapy could be a good resource or they're questioning whether it could be or not. You know, tell us a little bit about your ideas and your research from, you know, this topic. Yeah. So I think having whatever communication is is possible and regularly checking in with your 
uh, child, if you're a parent or caregiver, um, or just thinking about it yourself, if you're a youth listening to this or an adolescent, college student, uh, emerging adulthood, kind of in those 20s, how, how have things been? Uh, are you feeling fulfilled to some degree in your life? Are you able to enjoy the things that you typically are enjoying? Are there emotions or, or feelings that are getting in the way uh, in your life that are keeping you from doing the things that you would like to be doing, from having the relationships that uh, you'd like to be having, things like that. And uh, that in that in those reflections, in those conversations, and for caregivers, especially of younger children, in those observations, really paying attention to, are there big shifts? Are there any changes in how someone's feeling that it seems like they're just more down a lot, that they're having trouble doing what they had been doing before, uh, or they're not engaging in the types of things or not enjoying the types of things that they were before, or any other kinds of emotions or behaviors that are really getting in the way of, of their life, then that's a time that I think it would be good to think about what might be helpful. How might we, how might we help them understand what's going on uh, and get help to, to move past it, to learn some skills, to address it? Yeah, I think the hardest part for a kid growing up is when they're struggling with the emotionally or with their mental health and they don't know how to make sense of it. And they can blame themselves, they can blame other people, they can just feel hopeless because it's just overwhelming. And there's like, you're young, you, this is the world, like this is your life. You don't know any better. You don't have a context or a frame of reference or feedback about why it's happening, what the factors are. And so to your point, yeah, to, to be able to help a child to to make sense and the parents to make sense of it too is really grounding and helpful, I think. Yeah. And I, I think oftentimes our, we could kind of jump to a, an assumption that, oh, well, these are the good emotions and we want these emotions and these are the bad emotions and we want to get rid of these emotions. And mm -hmm. I don't see emotions as good or bad in themselves. I think emotions develop uh, for a purpose. There, there is reasons we feel sadness. There's reasons we feel anxiety. And I think if, if for me at least, and when talking about it with the people with whom I work, if we have the choice of being able to experience fear or anxiety or not being able to experience fear or anxiety at all, at all it's helpful to be able to feel scared. It keeps us safe. It's our body's alarm system. Sadness could help us recognize when maybe we're not having the relationships that we need, when we're experiencing a loss, when we need to take some more time for ourselves. And experiencing these emotions doesn't mean something's wrong at all with a person uh, or with, with any particular person. It is more, I think of it, as helpful information of what's going on with our bodies, with our lives. And if one emotion becomes much stronger or there is being experienced for much more of the time, then that's really helpful information about what's going on in someone's life and what might be helpful. Definitely. Yeah. And it's so important that we're trained to listen really well um, because we can 
try to understand those emotions, not just uh, in a simplistic form, like, oh, this is happening, you're anxious about it, but what about it are you anxious about? And, you know, through the training that you did, you know, with me um, during child card was, you know, a lot of that, like get into the experience that they're having. Like, what is it about this situation that they are afraid of? What are the consequences they're afraid of? And even further, you know, as I continued my practice, just learning more about the relationships that they have and like the the nuances of it, that there could be mixed emotions that you have about a relationship with someone. And that's really hard to deal with. It's hard to navigate and to figure out what to do with it, let alone to understand it. Yes, it uh, emotions aren't always simple. In fact, they're rarely simple. <laughs> and uh, that one's experience of emotions it could be pretty complex. And it is, you know, we spoke earlier about primary versus secondary control, changing situations, changing the way we feel about situations, that when thinking about how we're responding to our own emotions, it could be very similar. What are the things we want to do to try to shift our emotional experience, uh, experience new emotions or different emotions at different times? And what part of it is accepting that as humans, we are going to have an emotional experience, and sometimes that's going to include fear and anxiety and sadness, and that is part of being human. Yeah, Lexis just shared a really good example earlier about the, the the young person who jumped into her office chair and started spinning around, and I think Alexis is very perceptive to say, um, you know, he said, I have to spin, I have to spin, I have to spin. And you're like, go have it, you know, go, go have it, go, go spin. And you were perceptive to think, hey, maybe this is uh, not just kind of restlessness it could be, or impulsivity, it could actually be anxiety because it's like, you know, he's getting used to a situation. And you made such a good point, Lex, that like over time, he didn't do so much spinning as he got more comfortable in the environment and the relationship he has with you and so forth. So to pay attention to like what's happening underneath the surface is hard to figure out sometimes. Yeah, I want to go back to that point, but through an educational perspective, because so many educators might notice these big behaviors and think, oh, they're just not behaving the way they're supposed to, or they're not caring about the work that's happening. But oftentimes there's something more complex than that actually at the root of what they're seeing. So again, I always say not that all educators need to become psychologists, but just to recognize that Every, every human shows up with some range of emotion or some range of experiences that they're bringing with them into the classroom, into the learning environment. I just um, was sitting with my college group yesterday and talking about how each and every one of them has gone through an experience where they had something big happen in their life, whether it's anxiety related, whether it's a life circumstance that they had no control over or something just got in the way, like a health condition. And the professors that they were interacting with sometimes kind of just shut them down. They empathize for a moment and then sort of penalize them for going through those experiences. Mm. And, and oftentimes, you know, as educators, we have certain goals, we have certain benchmarks that we need to meet in a certain time frame, And the stress of that is palpable. It's real. And at the same time, we need to be flexible ourselves to teach and train younger learners, especially who haven't had these experiences, to understand that they too need to be flexible or ask for support or advocate a little bit more for when these things happen. And as adults in their lives, especially in, as educators in their lives, it's, it's I don't know, I think it's, it's very difficult. I can, I have a range of words I can use in this moment, but I think it's, it's a disservice to the students by not understanding or asking good questions to find out what's actually happening in their lives that's leading to some behavior 
or a lack of engagement or perhaps not even showing up to class or school because oftentimes there's something else going on in their lives and in their worlds. And the, the more that we ignore that these emotions are coming up and that these experiences may have happened for these learners, the more we're kind of pushing them out of the realm of being curious about learning, being engaged in learning, because we're totally invalidating their experience by not saying, hey, you know, what, what's coming up for you? What's happening? How can I best support you to be able to get through this moment so we can see you to the other side of this? Yeah, Lex, I mean, this gets at the core working with families for a while that I think it's, I want to take the perspective of the parent um, as we're talking, we're going to talk Please. about parents. It's such a good point because in my opinion, I always have to take the perspective of everybody involved in the patient I work with, Definitely. parents included. And I think the hard, one of the hardest things uh, fundamentally for parents is to know how to navigate the, I have to set limits and keep the structure and move the child towards whatever goal or value or like, you know, character building, whatever it is, versus I need to understand what's underneath it, as you're pointing out. And I need to nurture the emotions and ask and and be empathetic and try to try to um, try to work with them. And I think, especially when life gets busy and it's hard, I think it is nuanced because sometimes you do. You know, even in you know CBT, you know, you have to learn how to set limits in some ways as part of creating structure. But other parts of CBT and other therapies is also to, as you're pointing out, understand the emotional part. I think it's really hard. It's even hard as therapists sometimes to navigate that, let alone the parent, mm -hmm. let alone being activated yourself as a parent when you're stressed and you're feeling maybe guilty as a parent because you feel like you're not doing a good job or, or stressed or anxious about the child failing. And then as you get anxious as a parent, you know, you could you know, you lean in more to the limit setting and, and, the, and, and you know, pushing um, some sort of force uh, towards something when the opposite might be important. I think it's a nuance and it's really hard to figure out what to do and when and in what context. Um, I think that's where the nuance of therapy comes in. And that's mm -hmm. why, you know, David, the collaboration that you really emphasize is so important, I think, in therapy. Yeah. You know, so many good points here. And I, I think they fit together in the way of we're talking about how each person navigates their emotional experience and uh, how an instructor at any level, at a college level or, or earlier, will have their own emotional experience mm -hmm. when their students are acting in the way that they think they should act or shouldn't act or mm -hmm. what those expectations are and how sometimes our emotional experiences could get in the way of us seeing and uh, appreciating someone as a full person mm -hmm. with their own emotional experiences and causes of behavior. And of course, it's we can expect that we're going to be able to do this perfectly at any time as instructors or as, as parents because we're going to have our own experiences. We're going to have the times when we're frustrated and maybe are not going to be able to have that calm conversation understanding the cause of a tantrum or of a refusal to do something. Uh, but I think through reflection and through working on that, it could help us figure out what we are able to do when we might want to take breaks, how we may structure in some more uh, communication at times when it will be more effective. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, coming back to you know, where, we, where we started on this, that's some of the times that I think it could be most helpful to think about, it, would it be helpful to have someone help us with this, um, the support of a therapist? 
Uh, and you asked uh, a bit ago about what parents might do, what caregivers might do when thinking, I think my kid could use some help or we as a family could use some help with this. And there are a number of different ways to take those first steps uh, towards therapy or towards any kind of of mental health care. One way is connecting with the child's school. Sometimes uh, teachers will have helpful feedback and things that they're observing, and there may be mental health resources in the school that are part of the school system that may not be provided as, as high of an intensity as the services outside of the school, but are already built in and maybe more readily accessible. So I think that's one place to reach out. Pediatrician's office, because kid, most kids do fortunately have a pediatrician, uh, and they often know the resources in the community. Um, beyond that, I think reaching out you know, with uh, insurance agencies, have lists of therapists who are on the uh, on their insurance panel where they may take insurance. And I think resources such as infoaboutkids.org, effectivechildtherapy.com, uh, ABCT, uh, Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, has lists of therapists um, within each area. Uh, and if it would be helpful, I could give some thoughts about what I might look for mm-hmm. um, doing that. So there are a whole bunch of different approaches to therapy. And uh, a lot of times when talking with with parents who are just starting to explore what therapy might be like and whether it would be helpful for their child, the overall categories categories are, well, there's talk therapy and there's medication. Uh, And that is true. Uh, but just like there's lots of different medications, there's also lots of different ways of engaging in talk therapy. And some types of, of talk therapy would be are more skills-based, um, working on cognitive skills, behavioral skills. That's one of the, um, Jerry, that's what we worked on a lot together at the Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. Um, and it is one of the approaches that has the most research support. Um, the, the techniques that are most common in the in the therapy trials and the research uh, that's been that's shown to be most effective. Um, and there are other types of therapy as well, more client-centered therapy focused on relationship building, uh, validating, having helping someone feel heard and explore what's going on in their life. Mm-hmm. Therapies that are more family-focused, working on family structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot to be offered in a lot of different types of therapy. And I, I don't think it, it serves anyone well to say, well, there's only one type of therapy that everyone should be receiving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's a, a big part of what got me into the research that I'm doing is instead of a therapist saying, oh, well, or a doctor of, of any kind saying, oh, well, here's a type of, here's what we're going to do. And here's a type of therapy that families should be involved in saying, well, what's going on? What are our goals? Mm-hmm. What are the options? Different types of treatment techniques, different approaches, and what works best for us? What makes the most sense for our family? Uh, just like uh, for when seeking mental health services for myself or loved friends or loved ones, how I would think about, well, what? how does this person practice? What kind of work do they do? And is that a good fit? That I think everyone should have that opportunity, even if they don't have uh, background uh, and expertise in in therapy and mental health care. That's such a good point, David. I I love it. in some ways it's validating the, the the evolution of my practice and um, 
you know, when people come to me and they say their symptoms, the more I get to know them, I can see it's a, it's, it's a bit different than what they come to me in the very beginning with. And it evolves into something, maybe it's, maybe it's um, related to their symptoms, but, you know, the underlying process of what we got to work on is a bit, is a little bit different. And, um, and it could be actually a, a different symptom that's important to work on rather than what their presenting complaint might be. Uh, or what the parent might think the problem is. Because a lot of times, you know, in the research, you'll see this, the parents' ratings of things and the mm. child's ratings of things in terms of how the child's doing functionally or symptomatically could be different sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. is that, that's accurate, right? It is accurate. Actually, uh, research that has not been published, but one of my uh, doctoral students, Juliana Holcomb, uh, is just about to publish, uh, hopefully, on this, uh, that there's a lot of talk and a lot of research showing, especially the research of uh, Andy de los Reyes, uh, showing disagreement among parents and, and children and different reporters. And one of the questions that Juliana and I were, were asking is looking at what the disagreement is if you ask them separately, uh, what their top goals are, their top problems, and how much they agree if you actually talk about it some. And what we found is the disagreement, if you ask them separately what's going on, is pretty high. They'll have different perspectives. If you get them in the same room and have them share their opinions with each other, there's actually much more agreement. Mm. Wow. Uh, and some of that may be different perspectives, but Kids saying, oh, yeah, you know, I do see that. Parents saying, mm. oh, actually, you know, I, I don't see that as much. But if that's what's important to you, mm. like, we should totally focus on that. You know, it's funny. That is actually therapy. <laughs> that little <laughs> aspect of what they did in the research. That I mean, understanding each other, perspective taking, that is therapy in a lot of ways. Exactly. It is. It, it is. It's, it's working on that communication and finding those areas of common ground. And that families, I think, are... You know, when creating this protocol to try to help families and therapists collaborate, based on all the research, I thought like, oh, we're going to have like full out arguments. And like, I, I made this <laughs> entire appendix of flowcharts of what to do when the parent wants this and the kid wants this and how to navigate all these disagreements. And we never used it wow. in the entire trial because every time when we got together and and this was a, a small trial for uh and there were only 20 people in the condition, 20 families in the condition that did this uh, collaborative shared decision-making approach to treatment planning. But in all of those, that the caregivers were listening to the kids and saying, okay, and or maybe they're saying, well, I don't think that, but maybe we could do both. It, mm. it, we're just naturally working on finding common ground together. That's amazing. And, you know, the role of the person to facilitate that is so important. Once I had a patient say to me, you know, um, therapy doesn't help me. He was very averse to thinking that he's in therapy. <laughs> but he mm -hmm. goes, you help me. Mm. I yeah. thought that was really nice. Oh, that is such a powerful statement. And I, and I love that because it really is kind of identifying what to him was the key ingredient. And it sounds like for, for him that was, or at least perhaps it was that relationship. Mm -hmm. And that, well, it's not any particular technique. It's what we do together it's on the, on that personal level definitely and you know I'll, I'll i'll share a little bit about this but over the years i'm so interested in therapy and the concepts and the theories and i try to i mean i read so much in graduate school people don't even know how much i read because i was doing it just by myself um i would get the manuals i would like create my own flowcharts, like you said outlines because mm -hmm. i wanted to understand it and something that i really found and 
is that like there's such great ideas from each theory, each um, therapy. And I feel like sometimes I got to pull from that therapy because that aspect, just like you said, maybe it's communication. Maybe we all got to get on the same page. And if I'm not flexible enough to realize that, or, you know, if you've experienced something stressful and the idea from internal family systems therapy of uh, you develop coping mechanisms to, to deal with traumas and stressors that help you to survive it, but then they become obsolete as time goes on. You have to replace them with a healthier coping mechanism to the new circumstances, stuff like that. I feel like there's such rich great ideas that have come from people in the field. And for me, I'm like, it's like a, a catalog of songs. I'm like, mm-hmm. let me get this playlist going. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And for any therapist listening or therapists in training, I'd encourage you to look at different ways of integrating different approaches. The, the CEPI Society, sounds like it's SETI for extraterrestrial uh, <laughs> investigations, but CEPI, uh, Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration, uh, a lot of that work is thinking about how could we help providers instead of saying, oh, well, I only do this or I only do this, it, take the uh, effective, the helpful parts of, of different therapies. And what I'd say in terms of picking a therapist, in terms of thinking about if this person would be a good fit for you, I would want every, anyone meeting with a new therapist, I'd say, one, check if they're licensed. Check that they have the education that fits with what they're saying that they're going to do. Do they have a degree that's related to therapy? Uh, and are they licensed? So have they passed whatever examinations within the state and and met the state's criteria for practicing therapy. And then when talking with them, that I encourage everyone to ask the therapist to describe the work they do. Mm-hmm. Any therapist or other, any good therapist should be able to say, this is how I practice. This is the approach I use. And to be able to describe that in a way that's understandable to someone without any background in therapy who's never studied this before, um, both caregivers and kids, and describe how will how will you figure out together what the focus will be, who's going to be included in the treatment, if what the framework is for a treatment. Is it based in creating a safe space and, and being a supportive presence? Is it based on developing certain skills, uh, like a, a more cognitive behavioral approach? And to ask where have they where have they gotten the practice um, in doing this? Uh, I think you know any therapist I'd want to refer to or would, would want to use to myself would welcome those questions and enjoy them. I personally, when I'm talking with a caregiver who's thinking about therapy for their kid, and they ask questions about well. Have you worked with this population or how do you do this? Or what about that? Or what's the support for that? I love that. I think like, oh, this is, I'm like so excited to talk about this. And that someone's interested in in learning about that and and getting uh, me thinking, especially the questions that maybe I haven't been asked before. It's it's fun to think about these things and to work on this collaboratively. Uh, So ask, so when you're looking for someone, if you find a therapist, and they're wanting to talk about this with you, wanting to take the time to help you understand and be involved in the decisions and you, so that you know, like, ah, this is the work we're going to be doing. 
and that this person has a way of understanding what's going on in the family or for this child, and they have the education and the experience to help, great. If uh, on the flip side, if you call someone and they go, oh, you know, we just kind of see what's going on, <laughs> or we, you know, well, we chat and, and we meet weekly, and, you know, that's, or says something like, oh, you know, that's my job as a therapist. Mm. Uh, so you, you don't need to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, that that would give me pause. Mm. Um, that I'd, I'd want someone, and I think it's good to have someone who could explain the work they do, justify why they're doing what they're doing, and talk about how they'll know if it's, how everyone will know, is it working? Is it reaching the goals uh, that you want to reach? And, and communication is uh, essential for our jobs too. So it's a good segue into what it would be like to work with the person. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, clarity in communicating as a therapist is essential. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a good, it's a good point you made. I would say that the psychoeducation side of it, just understanding what the process is, how you're coming into it, it becomes the 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 beginning point of the therapeutic journey to be able to even understand what it's going to look like and get clear on the goals together. I think is such a beautiful aspect of it all too. Yeah, right. And I think sometimes mental health could seem more amorphous in, in the sense of like more, well, what what are these symptoms and what what does what do these different diagnostic labels mean? And in that way could seem a, a little bit like a, a black box and well, I'm just gonna go to a therapist and they'll do what they do. Uh, but if we think about going to a primary care provider, uh, that for for any kind of issue, say uh, say a leg injury, and there are different treatment options. Maybe one's surgery, one's uh, kind of pain relief, one's physical therapy, one's wait and see. Like all these different things. What kind of provider would you want? Are you wanting someone to say like, oh, well, I see what's going on with your knee, so do this, or someone to say, here are the options. Uh, and let me tell you a bit about each option. And this one, the recovery mm-hmm. may take longer, uh, but you could continue in your lifestyle. One, this one, like it would be surgery and you'd have to miss three weeks of work. And here's a pr- likelihood that the surgery will be successful, but then you'll have full mobility. That you want to, that it's good to learn about the information because the choice that may be right for one person may not be right for the other. It's all about what's important for someone in, in their life. And it's the same for therapy. Mm-hmm. What may be what's important to one family or or any individual youth is not going to necessarily be the same as for another family or, or youth. And it's not really, and the therapist could certainly have the expertise and, and perspective to provide feedback, but isn't going to be able to make those decisions about what are the priorities for any individual youth or family. I think that authenticity and the clarity is so important because that's also an initial point of trust and building trust Mm. in the relationship Mm -hmm. that's going to establish or not, right? Or just establish a sense of trust and faith in the process of finding assistance, finding help, and hopefully going on a a journey of healing in that way. Right. Yes. And I think it is that that process itself is, I think, therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like you were saying as well, that one modeling that humility mm. and coming into it with, I'm not saying I have all the answers mm-hmm. and exactly. it's okay not to have all the answers yeah. um, or not to have any answers yet. 
that this is going to be a process that we're going through together and working on together. And I certainly have things I could do to help. And I am confident and hopeful that I will be able to help and that together we'll be able to make things better. Mm. Uh, but that this is a, a team effort and that that is also empowering. Uh, that it's it's not, well, I'm going to do something to fix what's going on, mm -hmm. but yeah. that we're going to work together and you're going to bring your experiences and your strengths and I'm going to bring my experiences and my strengths so that together we could find a better way forward. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the term, I believe, from the literature was uh, collaborative empiricism, right? Um, mm -hmm. Where it's, we're going to go on this journey together to find what works and what doesn't. And that is kind of like an experiment. And so it doesn't mean you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. That's not absolutely not what it is. It's a, it's a very detailed, comprehensive treatment plan that I know, you know, you really emphasize there, you know, should be a clarity around how are you conceptualizing what the problems are and the issues and the symptoms? What's the conceptualization? There should be a very clear conceptualization. I pride myself on having a very clear conceptualization. That doesn't mean it doesn't evolve over time or the treatment plan doesn't evolve in subtle ways or different ways. But to be able to have the humility to say, hey, we're going to work on this. And we may tweak it along the way, but this is what we're working on. And here's the reason for it. Here's mm. the conceptualization. Let me explain that. And uh, for me, when I'm, you know, supervising students, I always tell them conceptualization is so key. Mm -hmm. And for, you know, people listening, conceptualization essentially says, here's the presenting problem or symptoms. And here is all the, here are the factors and how they interact with each other to, you know, to manifest these, these symptoms, problems, emotions. And the, the more you can understand, knowledge is power. The more you can understand and work together. And as you said, that is therapeutic in of itself because you become the patient, you become self-aware, you reflect on yourselves. You're going to have to do that for your whole life. Mm. You know, we know that we're older now and you, you got to reflect on yourself. That in of itself is therapeutic to be reflecting on yourself. Hey, I tried this way of communicating with my parents that didn't work so well. Let me try something different. Or, you know, when I feel sad or depressed, this is what I've uh, tried to do to work through it. But maybe that didn't work so well. Let me try something different. That is a collaborative process, but it's also in of itself therapeutic for the person. Self-awareness, self-reflection is, is therapeutic in nature. It, it is. And, you know, what you were, as you were talking about that, it really made me think even more so in that collaborative empiricism about the importance of therapist humility of recognizing we don't have the answers. And I think that is especially important when working with youth because youth are often facing a bunch of adults in their caregivers and their teachers, coaches, all, all, all in all these different areas of life who could often come at it with a, oh, well, I've lived through this. I know the way things are. And there are advantages to having that lived experience. Mm -hmm. But often the way that we get through the world as we develop is by kind of falling into the patterns that work for us mm. and ways of understanding the world that hopefully work for us. But those may not be the same ways that work for any individual youth. And at the same time that... You know, Coming from an adult perspective, we may have that lived experience and have thought about some of these questions and challenges and, and life choices and have made those decisions for ourselves uh, that youth, I think, come with something that is all, also unique and equally valuable mm. of an openness to different ways of looking at things, 
of an awareness of things that we may have lost through our time of pruning and saying like, I can't manage all of this, so I have to focus on this area or this way of approaching problems. And that I find it to be most genuine and fruitful that to not, that it's not like a, a fake, oh, well, I'm going to pretend to be collaborative, but really just try to get them to do this. But to like really say like, this is so wonderful to get an opportunity mm-hmm. to be uh, welcomed and privileged as a therapist. So wonderful to get an opportunity to like to be welcomed and privileged into someone's life mm-hmm. and to have someone share parts of themselves or thoughts or emotions are experiencing that they may not readily share or share it all with others. And to hear and learn about their way of seeing the world and in their way of coping with the world, that I, I think that is just as much growth. When therapy is going well, it is just as much growth from the therapist, for the therapist, as it is um, for, for, for the youth. Um, and, and that's kind of in in its ideal way, uh, because youth, you know, have experiences and thoughts and perspectives that are unique to them, unique to them. And just as important, if not more kind of aware and and mind blowing (laughs) than, than kind of our experiences as adults, which could sometimes be a little bit more narrow and rigid. And we need to keep challenging ourselves to have that sense of awe and wonder and curiosity that uh, we might have lost somewhere along the way. I agree. In the child development course that I teach, I go all the way back to the historical perspectives of psychology and remind them that, you know, children aren't just little adults, Mm -hmm. right? They have a a unique set of characteristics and qualities and new experiences that they've never had before. Mm-hmm. And we need to honor that and allow for that to unfold and stri- instead of trying to manipulate or change based on what we expect or mm-hmm. what we want. We really have to allow for them to have that point of development because mm-hmm. it helps them to develop themselves and understand themselves and understand the world and often help us, like you said, understand the world through their eyes. And it's such a beautiful thing. I say this to educators all the time. Oftentimes, young learners especially, they will come up with the most creative and beautiful ideas that we could have never anticipated or imagined if we give them the space to do that. And in collaborative work that you're describing here through mental health, I think it's so important to give them that space that often they feel so secluded and isolated in their own worlds because they don't have that forethought all the time of thinking about the future, thinking Mm. about different options yet because they often just don't know what's out there, what's possible. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, this may be a slightly nerdy tangent, but not completely a tangent because it, is, it is related. <laughs> you know, when thinking about why, like, why are little kids so funny sometimes? It's because I think a lot of it is the surprise of this unique way of seeing the world, these unique connections of oh, does this word mean this? Mis-, like switching up words, and it's that novelty that, and when I, I'm talking like toddler age now and and, mm-hmm. and four and five. But I, I don't think that's necessarily lost, even though the, the cuteness of it may change as caregivers and adolescents are kind of navigating the growth and, more, and increasing autonomy. There's still that new way of looking at things. And some of the ways 
may not fit with our current systems the way the world works, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily not accurate. Uh, and here's here's that nerdier part that just in case you thought that was the nerdy part, it wasn't. <laughs> this is the nerdy part. Uh, in the way children understand numbers, yeah. uh, you know, there is the arithmetic way, which is like the counting one, two, three, four, and seeing the distance between three, between one and four and four and seven being equal. It's three, you know, difference, difference between one and four and four and seven. And very young children may see it more in a geometric way. Mm. So as a factor, so they would see the distance between one and three as the same between three and nine. So it's tripled. Yeah. Uh, and that we train that out of children. Um, over those first few years of development and say, no, the way our world works, the way we think about numbers is zero and three is the same as same distance as three and six. And it's not that one's right or wrong. And in some fields of mathematics and, and some you know, uh, applications, that way of thinking about it as factors in the geometric way is what they use. Yeah. But we're, it's not that one's better or worse. It's just that we're kind of training our growing generation to think about it in the way that we've always thought about it. So there's the nerdy tangent in a no, I love that. number theory of sorts. And I'll, I'll bring it back to an educational caution because I often work with learners who have this abstract, unique way of thinking about learning that isn't the way they're told to learn. And that actually causes a lot of anxiety in them that they're doing something wrong which can spiral into their executive functions not coming online and, and a lot of things kind of going awry where they're like, how can I be so intelligent and struggle so much? Just because, not because they're necessarily struggling, but they're not necessarily thinking in the same way as they're being taught. Mm-hmm. And that causes this conflict within themselves that brings it back to this idea of, okay, let's figure out what actually is happening here. And let's figure out actually what's getting in the way, which I think you both do so beautifully in mm-hmm. the work that you do from a clinical perspective. Yeah. You know, this is, now I'm just on a nerdy tangent and we'll need <laughs> to fact check this because I'm pretty sure this is accurate. The The root of the word education is, uh, I think, like drukare or it's yeah. to draw out. Yes. So it's not so much about imposing and saying like, oh, you need to take all this on. It's about drawing out what the understandings, the ability to uh, take in information, make use of it. And, and and I think sometimes that that's been not as, uh, it's been lost. It's been, it hasn't been as commonly understood yeah, that way. It, it often gets lost in checkpoints and, you know, deadlines and expectations that are outside of ourselves as educators and as learners. And it's unfortunate that the system is <sighs> turning out that way. But, you know, in, in an earlier episode, I talked about um, Leonardo da Vinci talking about how he would um, create these beautiful sculptures, that it wasn't that he was the one creating anything from these blocks of marble, that he was helping to reveal what was already there. Mm-hmm. And I think about education in a very similar way, that we're, we're just in these children's lives to help them reveal the best versions of themselves and guide them and inspire them to understand themselves a little bit better as they navigate through this very complicated, always changing world. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's therapy too, right? That education, the root of education being to, to draw out. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that's therapy. You know, what are you feeling? Let's try to understand what you're feeling. Let's let that come out. Um, I think songwriting is actually like that. I'll give yeah. a, I'm going to go on a tangent here real quick about like two, how those two things combine. 
uh, once had a session where someone had to really just uh, get in touch with really sad feelings that um, hadn't been acknowledged or understood. And it all really came out in tears. But, you know, tears are not bad, as you pointed out. Sadness is not a bad thing. You understand your sadness and it tells you something important. It's very important for her to be able to experience that. And not, you know, I think a lot of times in the CBT world, you know, come around to seeing like if you push away emotions or you just try to avoid them all the time, it could be counterproductive sometimes. And so it came out and I, I thought, and I actually mentioned this to her, I'm like, I think there's going to be a song that comes from this. And like I came home and I wrote this song called Teardrops. I just recorded in the studio. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a, like a novice songwriter, but I think this is a pretty good one. The and link will be included in the podcast notes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will have to say that's also your therapy is to be able to write songs and 100%. be able to process information in your world too. 100%. Yeah. And it, I don't know where it comes from. It just comes out, pours out of me. Yeah. And, and the song is Where Do Teardrops Come From? Uh, maybe they're like prisoners waiting for their chance to run. Uh, maybe there's a reservoir that overflows when life gets hard. Where do teardrops come from? Maybe they're like a special key that helps me unlock everything. So, you know, um, you know, why do we wipe away our teardrops when they heal us? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's there there's uh, there are words, but you know, and and some therapies actually implement some artistic or creative ways of tapping into emotion that you know sometimes uh, can be overlooked as a as a tool or important part journaling even one of them you know mm. yet we talked about journaling earlier before the show so um, you know there's a lot of ways to access things that are therapeutic in your life yeah so so many different approaches um to to helping oneself and I, and I think that is uh, part of the the question is finding uh therapy uh and also finding things that are therapeutic mm. right and and that often, you know, when I think of therapy, more, uh, in a more classical or like standard way, often I'm thinking about talk therapy or psychosocial therapy, where two people are, are working on skills or using a, a different theoretical framework to work on relationship, family structures, things like that. But there are many, many things that could be therapeutic, uh, that if they wouldn't, necessarily fall into a therapy framework and not be something uh, that a psychologist or social worker or someone trained in therapy would do, that could certainly be really, really helpful and important for people's mental health. Uh, and that sometimes are termed therapy, um, but that's kind of broadening it, what therapy could be. That's a great way to put it. That's a great point. Great way to put it, right? And I think that's part of what what caregivers and, and youth themselves could be thinking about of what would be most helpful. Sometimes it might be most helpful to be meeting with someone who has expertise and specialized training in mental health, mm -hmm. in in anxiety and depression and attention difficulties and behavioral disorders and to uh, benefit from their expertise and working together on skills. Sometimes working with some, sometimes what may be going on may not need or may not be, uh, I don't know, yeah, may not need at that point working with someone with that particular expertise, but may need an opportunity to develop skills and feel a part of something. Yes. And that like maybe 
a theater group, for example, like just in mm-hmm. like, well, we're going to join this theater group and like and build some friendships and have something to to build some mastery and skills in or uh, working with with animals, doing music skills, sports, things like that. There, there are lots of different things that could be therapeutic, um, using that term more broadly. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tie this in. So, you know, we did a lot of uh, exposure therapy with patients at, at our time at CARD. And for those who you are not familiar, exposure therapy in, in so many words is helping people to confront the things that they're afraid of, knowing that by doing so, you can learn something. And you can learn, number one, is the thing that you were afraid of uh, really accurate or completely accurate in the way that you imagine it that's leading you to avoid the situation. So you might learn that it's not necessarily as bad as you had thought. Uh, classic examples, you know, going up to approach someone, have a conversation, you're terrified of what might happen, and you, you learn that it's not that bad. Uh, but number two, and David always told me, you know, there's two things. The other part of it is, even if it is um, kind of bad, that you can you can live through it with your support system if you access your support system, because mm-hmm. we don't want to have a false reality that everything is going to be peaches and cream through life, that um, uh, not everything is going to be, um, you know, perfect through life. Sometimes there will be challenges, and it's good to become resilient. So, you know, sometimes Sometimes, uh, to your point, we may need different things at different times. Sometimes exposure therapy may not be so helpful, right? Maybe there's things to process, let's say, within the family that are really conflictual. As you said, maybe there's um, problems going on or divorce or something that you need time to process. It may be making you anxious in different situations, but you know, it would probably be more helpful in some ways for certain people to learn how to process the emotions and the conflicts in your mind and 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 the ways of thinking that is leading you to become anxious in all these situations. That might be more appropriate. You'd have to figure that out with the person. But sometimes exposure therapy could really be empowering. We really experience this with a lot of our patients that, you know, you help people to be courageous and to get over those humps that are, you know, can, can, uh, are holding them back from expanding their life, doing things that they never thought they can do. Um, experiencing things that will have a positive upward spiral where they're starting to have positive experiences from that getting over the hump. And I'll, I'll share a quick funny story to bring some levity here. Um, so uh, one example would be someone I work with who is afraid of upsetting people. So terrified, guilt, shame, never want to upset people, um, you know. And so I try to think creatively, how can we actually help you experience upsetting someone? She's like, what? <laughs> you want me to upset someone? <laughs> what kind of therapy is this? <laughs> and obviously, I, as you say, I help her to understand the conceptualization about why this is therapeutic. This is not to force you to do something you don't want to do. You shouldn't feel forced to do things you don't want to do in therapy. This is a collaboration. Let me explain it to you and your parents so that there's a full rationale around why. Um, and she understood it and she was motivated, right? We want to make sure that the person's motivated to confront their fears. We don't want to instill our own motivations on the patient. So she was motivated and said, okay, let's, let's take step by step, little gradual steps. And one of the steps was going to Starbucks. Let's go to Starbucks. Mm-hmm. You're going to go to Starbucks and here's the idea. You're going to go in line and you're going to order something. Let's say it's a croissant. Order a croissant. Okay. Got the croissant. And when you're about to pay and when the cashier says, okay, that'll be $250, you are going to look into your pocket and you're going to go, oh, shoot, I don't have my wallet. I can't pay you for this. And there's going to be people behind you and they're going to be maybe a little upset because you're holding them up. Maybe they got to be somewhere. They got to get their coffee. They got to work. So we're kind of playing out the fear of what that might look like. And she's like, oh, my God, they're going to call the cops on me. 
<laughs> that was a real fear, right? Because people have a big imagination mm-hmm. and it could really terrify people. And it could be crushing, right? To think anxiety really could be crushing. It could feel like your whole world is ending and you lose perspective. And so it's so, okay, let's play this out. It's an experiment. Let's see what happens. And, you know, take your time. If you feel like you got to leave, you can leave. It's okay. But we're gonna, if you feel like you're going to be courageous, you can do it. I believe in you. So she did it. <laughs> So she comes out of the store because I stayed outside uh, to give her her privacy to do it. And she goes, okay, I did it. I did it. Except (laughs) they gave it to me for free. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, she's like, oh, I'm like, I think we just stole from Starbucks. (laughs) I'm like, let's go back in. I'll pay them for it. Starbucks is financially secure. You're, you're good. And you know, when you said that, I remember that story. That's wonderful. You know, and go, go, kindness of people, mm-hmm. right? Helping mm-hmm. each other out. And and it's it's a great example of, of practicing using skills, facing challenges, trying new ways of approaching things. And, and exposure therapy is one of the most, if not the most, actually, it is the most uh, commonly researched and effective approaches towards dealing with anxiety. Because what is anxiety really except the body's alarm system? Mm-hmm. Anxiety, fear, it is our body's way of saying, ah, there could be danger here. And it's really, really important to have an alarm system. We should all have smoke detectors in our home mm-hmm. uh, and we should all have alarm systems in our body. But just like uh, smoke detectors sometimes go off when there's not actually fire, our body's alarm system of anxiety could go off when there's not actually fu- when there's not actually danger, mm. and when a smoke detector goes off a whole bunch when there's not fire, and for some reason in my house it always seems to happen at night. Never, never is there a false alarm during the day. <laughs> but then we think like, how can we recalibrate this? Yeah. How, like maybe that's vacuuming it out. Maybe it needs a new battery. Like thinking about ways of of teaching it. Uh, and our smoke detectors are not that intelligent, so we can't really teach it what the level is, what's really dangerous and not. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, our bodies are much more intelligent and responsive than our smoke detectors at home. And by going out and practicing things that our bodies are saying, this is dangerous, and the anxiety alarm's going off, and then getting the experience of, oh, it actually wasn't as dangerous as our body's alarm system was saying it was going to be, that trains our body's alarm system. Mm-hmm. And it helps our body's alarm system say, ah, oh, maybe this isn't going to be as bad. And, and it starts to not be as loud of an alarm over time. Definitely. Yeah. It helps you to differentiate what really is uh, a true threat and what's not. And that takes life experience, like we've been saying. It just takes life experience. And to bring it back to f- engaging families in therapy, caregivers, parents, and uh, even teachers and coaches, right? Um, it's hard to work with a child who's anxious because it can make you anxious. You know, I actually saw, there is there, oh, Nick Meehan, uh, who is training at CARD 2, he's one of my supervisors one time, he mm-hmm. said, I found this study where they, they had anxious kids in a playground and they actually found that the adults around them, they didn't, they, they kind of monitored how the adults interact with the anxious child. And the adults actually were more likely to sort of coddle the anxious children just by nature of, wanting to, you know, help because <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they want to help the child to feel better. And so I think it's hard to, again, we've talked about the conflictual feelings you can have as a parent. Like, how do I encourage and push towards a goal versus also be empathetic and try to understand their emotions and work with them? And, uh, you know, you know, a lot of the work um, in child CBT is, is actually helping families and parents and caregivers to, even teachers and coaches, to learn how to to navigate that and to um, to to, to um, 
to become kind of emotional coaches in some ways to validate, but also to uh, find the right level of challenge. I think sometimes parents don't know what the right level of challenge is. Maybe they push too much, maybe they push too little, and, and that just takes time to figure out. And, and in my work in therapy, you probably see this too, is like you don't want the, the, the trial and error to become a disaster where people are like, oh, I give up on this. Or like we push too hard, we push too little, or we did this, we did that, and everything falls apart. It's like, no, this is part of the process mm -hmm. to figure it out through navigating it and to learn from the experience. Oh, okay, I think I got to approach these situations like this, those situations like that. And then it's uh, the holistic version of therapy to bring other people involved to, to help uh, everybody play a role in their own way. Yeah. You know, oftentimes we're faced with making decisions that will benefit us in the short term or long term. And sometimes there are just decisions that, you know, things that feel good in the short term and, and feel good in, in the long term. I've become obsessed with oatmeal lately. It's healthy in the short term. It's tasty in the short term. It's healthy in the long term. So it's like a win-win on both. But a lot of things in life kind of are, are, are don't fall into both categories. And, uh, you know, kind of experiencing fear and anxiety, challenging ourselves to do something that is difficult, maybe harder in the short term, even if it is going to be helpful for us in the long term. And uh, I think caregivers are naturally wanting to protect their children. And that is a good instinct and a good value. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to think like, ah, well, this is going to be harder for my ch child in the short term, but I need to let them do this so that way they could learn and, and grow that confidence um, for the long term. And, and oftentimes in therapy, it is working all together to figure out where that balance is and what people are capable and, and ready to practice it. And at any particular point, so that way, on the whole, the practices end up being more successful. Definitely, yeah. And it empowers the person. I think the more empowered a person feels to do stuff like that, the less they fall into sort of rumination or a hyper-focus on the past or things that have gone wrong in the past. Um, I think when people feel trapped, like, oh, I can't, I can't speak up, I can't open up to this person, I've seen this. I'm like, wow, like, you know, you really opened up to so-and-so and it really helped you to feel more connected. It helped all these positive things happen and you're less focused on the past. You're less focused on uh, hating yourself or feeling badly about yourself because you feel more empowered about what's happening now and in the future. You feel like you, you feel empowered. I think that these other symptoms naturally sometimes kind of subside because of that. You know, sometimes you do have to focus on the past and the difficulties that you've gone through and to process it emotionally for sure. But I think, as we're saying, like both things could be important. At the, you know, it's not an either or sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is uh, so many kind of choices and imbalances to make um, in, the, in the process. And, and it could certainly, uh, and I think that's where it could be so helpful to be able to work with someone and talk about that and, and figure out, especially when people are getting stuck in terms of how to, what to emphasize, what to try at different points. I think especially from a child perspective to remember that, you know, learning these skills will take time. 
from a neurodevelopmental perspective. Their mm. brains are still coming online. So sometimes even if it sticks or it works once doesn't mean it's going to work continually. There needs to be a support system to help to nurture and practice these skills that sometimes in our busy lives, we forget that we need to be patient with that process too. From an mm. executive function perspective, this is such an important point that I try to drill home with, with caregivers and families and, and educators that just because something, a behavior that you're expecting presents itself once doesn't mean it's going to continue without the proper supports and scaffolds sometimes until, you know, neurobiologically, you know, that prefrontal cortex is still developing oftentimes until you're in your twenties or thirties. So we want to make sure that we're supporting the children to realize that it's not always going to work out exactly the way we have practiced or planned or prepared for every single time. And that it's a process. I, I often will teach about, you know, the mama bear that comes in, swoops in and saves the cub from danger every single time. And, and it's great instinct and oftentimes well-meaning adults in children's lives will do a lot of that. But sometimes, like you're saying, that balance of being able to allow for them to explore and have agency and feel empowered, even when it doesn't work out, mm-hmm. is so important. Yeah, the, the literature has consistently showed authoritative not authoritarian, meaning like, you know, might makes right. I'm going to tell you what to do, child. You have to do what I say. That's authoritarian. Not that. Um, and also not permissive where you just let the child just kind of go out on their own and they sink or swim. Those two extremes have consistently in the research not shown to be great for children. It's really that in between of you're going to be firm, but you're going to be warm and empathetic at the mm-hmm. same time. You're going to be understanding, but you're also going to be firm because kids do need boundaries in a lot mm-hmm. of ways too, right? Like if you're living in a world where there's absolutely no boundaries. That's like, it's so expansive. Like you can't, you don't feel contained. If it's scary, it's overwhelming to not feel like there's sometimes the irony, like kids say they want no boundaries. They don't want rules, but like sometimes people need that to feel contained (laughs) and like, okay, I get how this works now. I don't have to like make up my own rules. It's like the dog, right? If you look at how dogs develop and I learned about this with your dog Rafa is that if they don't see an alpha in the house, and obviously, again, it's not like you have to be a authoritarian, uh, aggressive uh, like leader where you like do what I say. It's not. It's not like aggressive. It's it's uh, assertive and calm and, and kind and collected. Um, that if dogs don't see an alpha in that type of way, they try to become the alpha themselves. Mm. I think kids do this too. You know, the more aggressive kids. If they don't feel like there's trust, they don't feel like there's boundaries that are reasonable, that they believe in and they respect the adults, that they can try to become the alpha mm. within the structure around them. And that could be, you know, in that, that type of uh, situation, like the dog, the dog started, you know, the dog can start biting us. He's not doing that because he hates us. He's just like, I need boundaries. I need someone. to communicate. He's like, yeah, <laughs> I need someone to take the lead because there's a pack yeah, yeah. and the, the pack needs a leader. And he's like, I'll become the leader. Especially when developing new skills from a learning perspective, right? When things are new, that structure is so important. Maria Montessori spoke about this so beautifully that there needs to be flexibility within structure so that we can help to nurture and create and establish these experiences and opportunities to learn and grow. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, kids can see their parents struggling and it's unfortunate because parents are humans too. We have to remember that parents have their own difficulties and sometimes kids can feel like they have to take care of their parents in some ways as young kids and to become a leader or to, you know, if the, you know, different, different environments where they feel like they have to step up and lead, that could be overwhelming for the child. You know, it's just, mm. it is what it is um, because they're just a kid. They, they don't have the capacity to fully do something like that. Yet, but I also want 
I'm, I'm realizing that our time is coming to a close and we could talk about this forever. I think this conversation mm-hmm. can continue on for many days, if not many hours. Um, but I want to put a question back to both of you, especially for our listeners who might be thinking about um, how therapy might play a role in their life, their children's lives, or in their families' um, lives. And I, I want to ask you both, what isn't therapy? Right? You talked a lot about what it is, what the process is, what the different versions of therapy might look like, what might be therapeutic for different individuals at different times. But going into this process, um, what are some of those things that maybe therapy won't be able to provide for somebody who's looking for support or potentially answers? <laughs> yeah, that's that, it's a good question, and I'm, I'm trying to get my head around it. In, in, are you meaning in terms of what what to expect and what might be unrealistic expectations? I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. So I I hesitate to say, oh well, therapy will never be able to do this because therapy could, depending on the approach and what it and what it uh, a person does with their therapist, that it could also be a, a staging ground, a chance to talk about and, and reflect on and work on skills to help that person do all different types of things. And where the line is like, oh, well, that's not because of therapy. That's because the person was doing this in their life. You know, could therapy support them in doing that? Mm. I, th- I think yes. Uh, and most times, yes. So, I, So I'm hesitant to draw a line of saying, oh, therapy would never do that. But I do think you have a a really good point about going in with realistic expectations. And some of those uh, expectations or some of the things to think about is if you're meeting with someone for, say, 50 minutes a week, that that type of change or any type of change will take time. Right? And especially for issues and relationships or emotional challenges that have been very longstanding, that that's not something that uh, is going to be most likely a, a quick fix or a, oh, well, we'll meet a time or two and it'll be, mm-hmm. and we'll just see like, oh, it'll be all shifted. Or, oh, well, we've already discussed this once, so therefore, if it's not all better, it means this isn't working. I think you want to talk with the therapist about what the timeline expectations are. How will you know if it's working? So you could see if you're on track. It also shouldn't be a, oh, well, let's just do this indefinitely uh, because you'll never know when it'll work. Mm-hmm. But a kind of really quick um, miracle fixes or miracle cures, uh, especially for things that are are, are longstanding, are, are less likely. That said, there are... There's a lot of research about one-session treatments, uh, different ways of thinking about the world, different framings, feeling about or thinking about problems as being changeable instead of static. Mm. That that could help, like problem solving, like like problem solving, and kind of a different approach, a more flexible mind approach to problems and seeing them not as things, oh, this is just the way I am, but everything is being dynamic and and changeable. Mm -hmm. So I I want to give uh, credit to the approaches. There are some types of of problems and sometimes where a couple sessions or just uh, talking about something can be helpful. But Mm -hmm. in terms of realistic expectations, oftentimes and most of the time for things that have been longstanding problems, it's going to take more 
Uh, so that would be one of the things I'd, yeah. I'd say. And yeah. there could be reasons for that. People need to be ready to change too. Motivation is a huge part of treatment outcomes. Um, mm-hmm. To be ready to do something, to be motivated, to find a reason to want to make changes in thinking, behavior, feelings, um, and so forth. So that could that could take time for sure. Um, and and uh, different goals could be worked at at different times of therapy. Mm-hmm. That could be also important too to think about. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking a lot about you know my work in particular. It's a little different than clinical therapy, but from an executive function perspective, sometimes people aren't ready to Mm -hmm. take on the process of change because it is such an emotional experience, whether you realize it or not. And sometimes, you know, there's different points in our lives where we have more resources or capacity to be able to focus in. And I I just want to kind of bring up that, that that's nothing to be embarrassed by and that sometimes our lives unfold in a way that we might not even expect. And sometimes the timing really needs to be right. The fit needs to be right. The context needs to be right. Mm -hmm. But also that, and I know from hearing a lot about Jerry's work, especially in in yours too, David, that, you know, it it really is about this collaboration. It's not that you go to see a professional seeking assistance and they're the ones that are going to make the change. I think it really is about that process of working together Mm -hmm. and being able to be available to that because... Again, at different points in our life, we may or may not be. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's a fair amount of research on stages of change and, and readiness for change, and that is a really important part. And sometimes in therapy, that's part of what could be worked on, is thinking about one's openness to change and, and readiness to do any kind of thera- therapeutic work. So uh, I would, if. I would encourage people who are thinking it might be helpful to explore. I wouldn't want to discourage people thinking like, oh, I just don't think I'm ready to talk about this. Mm. I'm I'm not going to because it may be that getting to know people, getting to know a therapist may open up possibilities that you weren't or that someone might not have been aware aware of um, already. But there there are times when it may be, you know what, maybe this isn't the fit for right now with this person or this particular work, and maybe at another point in life, uh, it might be a better fit. And to consider too, um, giving it time, right? Like you said, I have patients, sometimes they really got to do hard work in therapy. They got to be really honest with themselves. They got to really face harsh realities. And sometimes they'll say to me like, oh, I was really like not wanting to be here today. (laughs) But after the session, I feel so much better. And that always happens. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes it's just the support, knowing you have a supportive person in your world that you can feel comfortable sharing and being vulnerable. I think that's also a societal issue that sometimes it feels uncomfortable being vulnerable around people. So I think that support and I think some uh, often the validation and the normalization of that you know with you know back to social media that and that kind of drive for perfectionism and seeing oh well this is what others are doing and this is what life should be even though it's a a very uh often non-complete picture of life that we could see online that if coming in with expectations of well i never want to feel anxiety or i never want to be scared of anything Mm -hmm. or i never want to feel down um, or or feel badly about anything then that's those are expectations beyond of what beyond what it is to be human yeah, and yeah. I think then that would be disappointment uh, lead to disappointment uh, but coming in sometimes a lot of the work is recognizing that 
humans do feel sad sometimes. And, and that's okay. And that doesn't mean anything's wrong uh, in itself. And taking the judgment away from the, the feelings. Because sometimes there's a feeling of sadness, a feeling of anxiety, and then there's the judgment of, I shouldn't be feeling sad. I shouldn't be feeling anxious. This means something's wrong with me. This means I'm not going to be able to achieve these things I want to achieve. And some of, that wor- some of the work is finding that balance of working to grow and change and also working to a- accept and care for oneself for, for who one is. Yeah, you can learn so much about yourself through the hard feelings. As you're saying, they won't call them negative feelings, but the hard feelings sometimes mm-hmm. that are uncomfortable. You can learn so much about yourself. Mm-hmm. And to have someone help you to contain them and to have the space to to uh, confront them and to feel them and to understand them is is one of the most important things we can do in life. And uh, I'm just going to give a quick, uh, a quick example about how uh, in light of this conversation, so... I once had a patient say, you know, I, I learned a lot of skills previously in, in therapy. Um, and I actually used those skills to get people to like me. Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is a good example. Like those skills could have really helped that person to regulate, to do different things. But her process of therapy could have evolved into actually feeling good about herself. And to mm. your point, David, like, you know, what you're getting out of therapy should be collaborative in terms of where they are at that point. People can need different things at different points and stages of their life. And that is, uh, it's important to be aware of what that might be. Like, you know, skills can be very, very useful. And, but they're, if they're used, maybe not in a way that's going to help them to grow in different ways, then it's good to be aware of that and to say, wait, you know, I think um, beyond just using the skills to just get through a moment or just to survive a moment or to feel a little bit more regulated, let's also to help you to, like you're saying, develop relationships, feel more secure within yourself to feel more strong and capable of uh, handling situations in life, be more able to solve problems and so forth. And like, that's a lifelong process. You know, yeah. therapy is great to kind of get that jump started and to give you some ideas and concepts through our field to facilitate that. But, you know, in some ways the patient, that's that's their journey too. And we have to remind them, this is your journey and you will continue this process your whole life and you will utilize this, you know, and therapy is not forever, but you're going to learn a lot. You know, that's the hope and you're going to utilize it. And the more you integrate into your life, we hope that, you know, different aspects of your life will get better. So with all that said... We are so happy to have you today, David, uh, join us. This conversation uh, in many ways was not scripted at all. We really just let this evolve, which really speaks to the cohesion that we have, my sister and I and you coming together. And I'm just so happy that I get to, uh, to, to have you join in on this because with Alexis, it's been such a great experience for me. We know each other really well. We collaborate really well. We, um, we can have these types of conversations that are free-flowing and Back in the day, I was probably way more shy than I am now. I would never <laughs> imagine myself doing this. So uh, I have to give credit for Alexis to helping me with exposure therapy and <laughs> <laughs> to push myself. It was a process to get you here, but we're glad you're here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And David, thank you so much uh, for being here. You, you provided such great insight uh, from your perspective and insight. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And it's, it's great to be in a room with you again and to be chatting about these things. Totally. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Read Connected podcast. Please remember that this is a podcast intended to educate and share ideas, but it is not a substitute for professional care that may be beneficial to you at different points of your life. 
If you are in need of support, please contact your primary care physician, local hospital, educational institution, or support staff at your place of employment to seek out referrals for what may be most helpful for you. Ideas shared here have been shaped by many years of training, incredible mentors, research, theory, evidence-based practices, and our work with individuals over the years, but it's not intended to represent opinions of those we work with or who we are affiliated with. The Reconnected podcast is hosted by siblings Alexis Reed and Dr. Gerald Reed. Original music is written and recorded by Gerald Reed. Editing and recording was done by Cybersound Studios. If you want to follow along on this journey with us, the Reconnected podcast will be releasing new episodes every two weeks each season. So please subscribe for updates and notifications. Feel free to also follow us on Instagram at Podcast. That's Read Connect Ed Podcast and Twitter at Read Connect Ed. We are grateful for you joining us and look forward to future episodes. In the meanwhile, be curious, be open, and be well. Mm-hmm.